0: PodCastle number 140 for January 18th, 2010. Terrible Ones by Tim Pratt. Rated R for Language and Sexuality.
1: Greetings, fellow PodCastleites, and welcome. My name is Wilson Fowley, and I'm your guest host for today. I'm very excited to have been tapped for this honor again, and it's not just because the PodCastle narrator's dungeon is a really cool place. Uh, Dave, could we maybe get someone to donate a space heater or a coal scuttle or something? Anyway, a lot of why I'm excited is because of who wrote the story and who's reading it. The story is Terrible Ones by Tim Pratt. Tim's a big favorite around here, and if you don't know why because you're new to PodCastle, well, you're about to find out. The story involves Greek mythology, and, since it opens with one, it's no spoiler to tell you that Tim uses a Greek chorus in this tale. I bring this up because I was going to talk about Greek choruses in this introduction. I would have talked all about how a Greek chorus was, back in the time of ancient Greek theatre, a group of men, yes, it was a sexist culture, who commented on the action of the play in, well, Chorus. And I also would have mentioned how Greek choruses, or modern equivalents, have been used by contemporary artists and creators like Woody Allen in Mighty Aphrodite, Ashman and Menken in The Little Shop of Horrors musical, and the writers of the animated film Flushed Away, and how most, if any of them, didn't stick to using only men for the purpose. But really, are you all that interested in any of that? Maybe some of you, maybe a little, but probably not. Just something to listen through until the story starts. So I figure, if you're going to have to listen to me chatter on about some random thing, it may as well be about, well, me. You see, I'm particularly excited to be introducing a Tim Pratt story, since it was, in a way, because of another story of his that you're listening to me right now. A friend of mine, iCheck, recommended Tim's story, Impossible Dreams. And because he knew that I was listening to a lot of audiobooks on my commute, he found an online recording of the story... It happened to be Escape Pod's version, as part of 2007's Hugo nominees. Impossible Dreams went on to win the Hugo that year, by the way. That was my first ever podcast. I looked into Escape Pod, and I liked the idea of listening to a short science fiction story every week. I read lots of SF in my teens and twenties, but recently hadn't been reading as much, and this seemed a good way to get back into it. So I started downloading the stories. Then Steve escape pods host at the time recommended the Dakota ring theater podcast so i started listening to that and then i found podcatcher software and then podcasts of canadian radio shows that i liked, but didn't always have time to listen to on the radio like quirks and Quarks and the vinyl cafe and then podcastle started and then through that i found the brain science podcast which by the way i highly recommend you can probably guess that i don't get through as many audiobooks these days Meanwhile, back at PodCastle, Rachel had given me a chance to read The canvas and Lord Iron, and then several more after that. Dave and Anna have trusted me with some great opportunities, including the honor of reading PodCastle's 100th episode. But it all started with that first Tim Pratt story back in May of 07. And that's enough about me. How did you find your way to podcasts? What was your first one? How many do you listen to? And that's enough about you. Now, besides Escape Pod and PodCastle, Tim Pratt's stories have appeared in Asimov's, The Year's Best Fantasy, The Best American Short Stories, and Other Nice Places. He lives in Berkeley, California with his wife, Heather Shaw, and their son, River. He's serializing a novel online called The Nex at timpratt.org slash nex. That's N-E-X, not the plural of neck. Terrible Ones itself originally appeared in The Third Alternative back in 2004 and was also reprinted in his anthology Heart and Boot and Other Stories. That's H-A-R-T, Heart, by the way, if you're going to go looking for it. I'm also excited to be introducing today's reader. M.K. Hobson is one of my favorite narrators here at PodCastle. Well, and one of my favorite writers, too. I really enjoyed her novel The Native Star that came out this year, and so did a bunch of other people. For one preternatural reviews had it in their top five for the year and another review site the book smugglers rated it excellent but the marketing highlight that i think ms hobson is most pleased with is that felicia day you know from buffy the vampire slayer tweeted that she liked it and she has over 1.7 million followers i hope mk got a bunch of sales from that and i hope that one or two of you listening to me now go and check it out and hopefully buy it but first a story
2: Terrible Ones by Tim Pratt The Greek chorus first appeared on Thursday night as Zara lugged two paper bags full of groceries into the gravel public parking lot. The chorus members wore tattered togas made from faintly flower-patterned, oft-washed bedsheets, and their faces were painted white with grease paint. Since she was in Berkeley... Zara assumed the chorus members were performance artists of some kind and didn't pay much attention when they drifted from out of the bushes and among the parked cars to stand in a loose semicircle a few feet behind her. As she unlocked her trunk and wedged the grocery bags between a box of mismatched shoes and a broken lamp she'd never gotten around to throwing out, the chorus said, in a single voice from many throats, Crazed with rapture, she sings and trills, dark bird that loves the night. The line sounded familiar. Zara was an actress, and she'd done several classical plays, but she couldn't quite place it. Zara straightened, slammed her trunk, and looked at the chorus. The fading light and white makeup smeared their faces into blank anonymities. They might have been looking at her expectantly. "'Fuck off,' she said. "'You're in my way.' One of the chorus members cupped his ear theatrically. "'What did you say?' "'Never mind. I heard as I hear your destiny.' weeping, cacophony, cries that assault the ear. Zara got into her car, locked the doors, and threw it into the reverse. The chorus scattered like pigeons making way for a bus. Once she'd backed past them, they reformed in front of her car, and their eyes shone in her headlights. She flipped up the high beams, and they shielded their faces from the brightness. Zara turned the wheel and drove away, leaving the chorus to stand in the cloud of dust her wheels threw up from the gravel. The Furies were old in those days. Alecto, Tisiphone, and Megara lived together in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco, in an apartment building decorated with chipped carvings of lizards, between a strip club and a three-story liquor erotic bookstore combination. Sometimes they became confused and lived for a while, cuckoo style, in someone else's home. The rightful residents would go on drunken benders or crack their skulls on curbs, or suffer hysterical blindness whatever the specific cause, the effect was ignorance of the presence of the Furies in their midst. Eventually, inevitably, the ladies would look around and realize they'd been sleeping in strange beds, eating someone else's saltines and vanilla wafers, and they would leave, allowing the people they'd disrupted to recover their senses and resume their lives. Those intruded upon by the Furies in this way tended to throw open their windows and bundle their sheets down to the laundromat, for the ladies left a smell of dried blood and rancid olive oil behind them when they departed. Alecto was the most practical of the three. She did the shopping and kept the ants out of the kitchen. Megara muttered darkly to herself and walked the streets at night, hoping to be attacked. All she wanted was an excuse to do violence in self-defense. But in a place where murders were commonplace, no one ever threatened Megara, who shuffled along in her housecoat until dawn. Tissaphone tended to stay closer to home. She went down the stairs 15 or 20 times a day to check their brass and glass mailbox in the lobby, even on Sundays, though they never got anything other than take-out restaurant menus and pamphlets from upstart religions. Once, years before, when they were more self-aware, they received a jury duty notice, addressed to the apartment's previous occupant. The ladies had a good laugh over that. One day, while Electo stood dropping dried scorpions and seahorses into a pot of boiling water on the stove, and Megara sat staring out the window at the drug dealers and college students thronging the sidewalk, Tissaphone went down the creaking stairs to their mailbox. She opened the box with a tarnished key, and inside found a thick piece of parchment, folded in thirds, sealed with a dollop of red wax. The symbol embossed in the wax was a monstrous face, mouth gaping. An oracle's face. Tissaphone broke the seal and opened the parchment. It was what she'd been waiting for, what they'd all been waiting for—a letter of commission. Weeping a little for reasons she could not have fully named, for happiness and anxiety, and simply because the worn-down gears in her mind refused to mesh properly anymore, Tissaphone went back up the stairs, clutching the parchment, afraid it would disappear or transform into a Thai restaurant menu. She had to tell Alecto and Megara. They had to prepare. Zara got home, kicked off her shoes, and hurriedly put her groceries away. She only had a few moments to eat before leaving for rehearsal. The red light on her answering machine blinked at a seizure-inducing rate. There were so many messages since this morning that even the machine appeared to have lost count. She pushed the button on her way to the kitchen, and Doug's voice emerged from the tinny speakers, calm and rational, a financial analyst's voice saying, I need you to beat me with a bamboo cane, and I need you to plug my ass and lash me bloody. One message after another, a continuous litany. Whenever the machine cut him off, he just called back and resumed his patient pleading. Zara rooted through her fridge for mold-free cheese and cursed as she listened. This was the second day he'd called, and apparently he wasn't going to give up easily. One of those assholes at the club must have given Doug her home number, probably for a substantial bribe. At least he wasn't calling her cell phone. She wondered briefly if he had her address and if she should worry. But if he showed up here, she could play along, get him naked and tied up, then shove him out in the hall, or call the cops, or try to reach his wife. Surely someone like Doug, a middle management pillar of the financial district, would have a wife. Someone who wouldn't approve of him going to clubs like Damien's basement, or of his more expensive private play partners, like that of her own summer job persona, Mistress Zara. Mistress Zara was just a role she played, no different than Ophelia, Medea, or Blanche Dubois. Though she did enjoy whipping assholes like Doug, she had to admit, and it paid better than temping. She'd made enough money working at Damien's over the summer to concentrate on theater for the rest of the year. At the time, it had seemed like the perfect job. She hadn't realized Doug would get so attached. He didn't understand that their relationship, such as it was, stopped when she put down the whip. She'd have to do something about him eventually. Get one of her big, tattooed friends to pay him a visit at work and tell him to fuck off, for instance. But she didn't have time to worry about it right now. Final dress rehearsal was tonight, and the show opened tomorrow. Zara ate a cheese and wheat bread sandwich while standing up at the counter, followed it with a gulp of low-fat milk, grabbed her bag, and slipped out of the apartment. With Doug still droning on her machine about how he needed her, she owed him. They had a connection In the empty apartment, a new voice spoke from the machine, another message hidden among Dugs. It was a woman's voice, smoky, throaty, like a torch singer past her prime. I know you won't hear this, Zara, but I've got to give you warning, and this counts by the rules. There are three old ladies coming to see your play tomorrow night, and they're harsh critics. Maybe you should let your understudy play the lead. There, advice dispensed, nice and fair. A click, and then it was Doug again, demanding all the torments he thought Zara owed him. Zara ran to catch the BART train from the East Bay into San Francisco, thinking briefly that if Doug saw her dressed like this, in running shoes, a t-shirt, and loose cotton pants, instead of in a leather corset, knee-high boots, and several silver piercings, it would help disabuse him of his illusions about their relationship. She went into the tiled brightly lit station and headed for the escalator only to encounter a blockade of scaffolding sawhorses and yellow tape. The escalator was closed. A crudely hand-lettered sign with an arrow directed her around the blockage. Cursing, sure she would miss her train, she followed the signs, walking along a passageway of covered scaffolding farther than seemed reasonable. Was the train station really so big? until finally reaching a stopped escalator that led, apparently, up to the platform for San Francisco-bound trains. She began to wish she'd driven, even though parking was nearly impossible in the part of the Mission District where the theater was. After she ran up the escalator, she found the platform wholly deserted. She said fuck. Because there should be some people waiting, even on a Thursday night, unless she'd just missed the train. Which meant she'd have to sprint for the theater to make rehearsal on time. She hated making people wait on her. Because she knew what it was like, sitting around waiting for the lead actress, thinking what a bitch prima donna she was. Zara didn't want to be seen that way, not even by the cast of a little experimental theater that could only seat about 50 people tops. She crossed her arms and looked out at the darkened overpass and the Oakland hills beyond the platform. Odd. There should have been lights from the houses on the ridges, but the hills were just dark shapes in the moonlight. Were they doing rolling blackouts again? And why was there no traffic on the overpass? Was it closed for repairs, too? Then a train pulled in, surprising her. There had been no announcement of an oncoming train on the PA system. Still, it was headed in the right direction, so when the doors slid open, she got on. There was only one other passenger, sitting in one of the sideways-facing seats with a newspaper held open in front of her face. Zara dropped down into the seat opposite, glancing at the woman's newspaper. It was written in Greek, which she couldn't read, and Zara shifted her gaze to the blackness beyond the windows as the train slid away from the station. The woman across from her tossed her newspaper onto the carpeted floor. "'Nothing but bad news,' she said in a smoky, throaty voice, smiling." The woman was in her 40s, probably, dressed in a tailored black business suit, her hair blonde and stylishly short. Oh, Zara said, not really in the mood for conversation. I'm Nikki, the woman said. Because it was going to be a long ride under the bay and into the city, she said, I'm Zara. Good to meet you. Nikki crossed her legs. I'm a talent scout. Oh, Zara said, feeling a stir of interest, like for a record company? She had lots of friends and bands, some of whom would happily sell out in a heartbeat. For an agency, actually. We represent musicians, dancers, actors. We're always on the lookout for new clients. Zara didn't say anything. She was ambivalent about the very concept of agents. She was more interested in the art than the marketing, which perhaps meant she needed an agent. On the other hand, perhaps it meant she didn't need one at all. "'Agents might want her to do things, like audition for commercials. "'They might want her to get a tan.' "'Are you a performer?' Nikki asked. "'Sometimes,' Zara said. "'Actress?' Zara nodded. "'Nikki looked at her expectantly. "'I'm playing the lead in Medea,' Zara said. "'It's a contemporary version, set in the suburbs, very minimalist, "'but with some almost grand guignol touches at the climax.' It sounds fascinating, Nikki said, and she sounded like she meant it. Zara wondered that Nikki could sound so sincere no matter what she actually felt. Maybe from one moment to the next, she didn't even know what she was feeling. That had to be part of her profession, right? Sociopathology is an occupational hazard. Except for a talent scout slash agent, it wouldn't be a hazard, but an advantage. As her friend Dave, the unemployed programmer, liked to say, it's not a bug, it's a feature. "'It's a good role," Zara said. "'I'll come to see it,' Nikki said decisively. "'Has it opened yet?' "'Opens tomorrow.' "'Where?' Zara told her the address. "'I'll be there,' she said. "'Okay,' Zara said, shrugging. Nikki frowned, as if she'd expected something more. "'Most young, hungry actors probably drop to kiss her boots "'at the merest whiff of interest,' Zara supposed. "Medea," Nikki said. "'That's the one about the woman who murders her children, right?' "'That's the one,' Zara said. "'I wouldn't miss it for anything,' Nicky said, more decisively. "'The train stopped, and the doors hissed open. "'Zara didn't recognize the platform. "'It was underground, with marble walls, "'doric columns, and stone benches. "'She didn't see a sign anywhere. "'Was it the 12th Street station? "'If so, it had been extensively remodeled. "'It seems like she would have noticed that "'on another one of her trips.' "'See you,' Nicky said, and left the train.' The doors closed behind her and the train pulled away into a dark tunnel. Zara leaned her head back against the window and closed her eyes. It took twenty minutes or so to get from Oakland to the mission, and she'd left home in such a hurry that she hadn't brought anything with her to read except her script, which she already had down cold at this point and she didn't want to look at anymore. She'd always been good at remembering lines. When she was really into a role, speaking her lines didn't even feel like a recitation, it just felt like talking, saying what came naturally. That was her favorite feeling. Someone coughed, and Zara opened her eyes and lifted her head. Holy shit, she said. The Greek chorus was back. When had they gotten on the train? They must have come from another car, creeping quietly, sliding open the adjoining doors without a squeak. Or, more likely, Zara had fallen asleep and she just hadn't noticed them. They stood in the middle of the aisle, holding on to the grab rail above their heads, though there were any number of empty seats. They all stared at her silently, swaying a little with the movement of the train. Zara thought about getting up and going to another car, but what if they followed her? This had better be a coincidence, she said. We just happen to be going in the same direction, right? You aren't following me, are you? The chorus did not answer, just looked at her. So what are you, mimes? You were plenty talkative before, or are you just frat boys? Still no response. Zara snapped open her purse, black vinyl, decorated with little silvery skulls, and rummaged until she found a mostly used-up tube of lip balm. She held it between her thumb and forefinger, took aim, and threw it at one of the chorus members' faces. The tube bounced off his nose, and he squawked like a bird and flinched away. Just fuck off, Zara said. We've heard things, the chorus said hesitantly, half of them mumbling, none of them quite in sync. But only from strangers, those who carry messages, have no power. So you've got a message for me then, Zara said. What is this, guerrilla marketing? Viral advertising? How much do you get paid? Torrents of blood will fall from the sky. Justice brings new pain on a fresh whetstone. Fate sharpens her sword. Each charge is countered by another, and who can fairly judge between them? Yet whoever acts must be punished. "'Such is the law.' "'The only law you should be concerned with "'is the one against pissing me off,' Zara said. "'If you don't get away from me, "'I'm going to kick your asses concurrently "'or sequentially, whichever you prefer.' "'The chorus member in front, "'the one she'd hit with her lip balm, said, "'Go on. My heart trembles with fear.' "'Is that supposed to be sarcasm?' she asked. "'The chorus leader bowed his head. "'We are old. You are young. You must teach us.' Before Zara could reply, or throw something else, the train slowed down. Glancing out the window, Zara saw the familiar, brightly tiled walls of the 16th Street Mission Station, with people, normal people, milling around. You assholes should be put to sleep, Zara said, and when the doors opened, she got off the train. The chorus didn't follow, but as she walked away, they called, "'So you fall, abandoned, searching your heart for joy, but finding nothing, "'sucked dry, gnawed by monsters, a shell, a shadow, a...' Then the doors slid closed and cut off their voices. Halfway through the second act, Zara saw Doug poke his head through the door at the back of the theater, his expression unreadable at this distance.' He came in and sat down in the back row as if he had every right in the world to be here, at a closed, final dress rehearsal. So much for her hope that he hadn't penetrated the inner mysteries of her life. If he knew she was here, he knew as much about her as there was to know. She went on performing her scene with the actor playing Jason, deeply into the role of her suburbanite version of Medea, Her kids, actually the directors, a boy and a girl, seven and nine years old, remarkably well-behaved, practically raised in the theater, sat on the floor, the boy playing with dolls, the girl with a dump truck. The gender stereotype reversal was just one of the writer-director's countless tiny little flourishes. She imagined, briefly, that Jason was Doug, and her bitter lines took on a new level of heat, but she forced herself to dismiss the comparison. Why give Doug so much power? He was just a client with an overactive fantasy life who somehow failed to comprehend that Mistress Zara was nothing but invention. When the curtain came down on Act Two, she'd tell one of the stagehands to get rid of him and he'd be bustled away. Maybe she should think about calling the cops or at least getting a restraining order. But Zara didn't have the chance to do any of those things, because in the middle of a crucial monologue, the moment when Medea decides that the only solution to her problems is to murder and murder again. Doug rose from his place in the back row and came walking down the aisle. He was clearly fresh from work, dressed in a white shirt, dark tie, and slacks, his face handsome but a little doughy, poised somewhere between the end of baby fat and the onset of middle-aged thickening, just another thirty-something member of the gray horde with a wider-than-average streak of kink. Zara didn't let her lines falter, even as Doug continued to approach the stage, even as the director stood up and said, "'Hey, you can't be here,' even as the children broke character completely and said, "'Who's that guy?' She continued her monologue as Doug climbed up on stage. He came up over the edge of the proscenium, just downstage of where she stood. His movements were clumsy and awkward, like a chubby kid hauling himself out of a swimming pool. "'Mistress,' he said, getting to his feet." "'How weak my heart must be,' she said, still in character, "'to be swayed by such pitiful pleas.' "'Doug frowned, then took out his wallet. "'He flipped it open, took out a sheaf of bills, fifties mostly it looked like, and threw them at Zara's feet. "'There,' he said, "'prepaid through the end of the month. "'Now get out of that stupid dress and put on something good. "'I had a hard day, and I need you to make my night even harder.' Zara stared down at the money on the floor of the stage, her lines forgotten. The rest of the theater was silent, even the children. "'You motherfucker,' Zara said, looking up at him. "'You think I'm a whore?' Doug grinned. "'I guess so. I guess you'll have to punish me for that.' Zara rushed at him, put both her hands on his chest, and shoved him. He shouted, arms pinwheeling, and almost fell off the stage. He landed on his ass at the edge of the apron. Get out of here, Zara said through clenched teeth. Never come near me again, you sick freak. I'm the sick freak, Doug said, rising, wincing as he rubbed his ass. At least I finish what I start. He nodded toward the stage floor. You keep the money. I'll see you. Limping a little, he went down the steps and out of the theater. There was silence for a moment after the door closed behind him. Well... "'the director said finally. "'Shall we take it up from the end of Act Two? "'Unless Zara has any other visitors.' "'The other actors laughed, a little tensely, "'and Zara squeezed her hands into fists. "'The story of this would spread all over. "'Theater people love to gossip.' By next week, everyone would think she was a prostitute, when the truth was she'd never even touched any of her clients, not skin on skin, let alone had sex with them. She'd just wielded the whip or the crop and prodded with latex-gloved hands and talked the talk. It was just acting. But it would get all twisted around into something else in the stories. Now, when the other actors looked at her, they wouldn't see Medea, they would see Zara with the crazy John, boyfriend, whatever, with a wad of crumpled money at her feet. Doug had ruined the role for her, tainted the experience. Well, fuck that. He was going to pay. Are you ready, Zara? the director said. Yeah, she said. She kicked the money off stage. Let someone else have it. Late that night, after the director wished them luck and Zara showered off the fake blood, she went in search of her revenge. Rodney, the doorman at Damien's basement, refused at first, but Zara wouldn't let it go. I know you gave that son of a bitch my phone number, she said, so you can damn well give me his last name. He paid me, Rodney said sullenly. Yeah, I'll pay you by not telling Damien and getting your ass fired, she said. Shit, he said, but he told her what she wanted to know. Doug had mentioned the name of his company once or twice in the awkward social moments before their sessions, and the same memory that made it so easy for Zara to retain her lines helped her remember where he worked. From that, it was short work on the internet to find an online directory for his company, complete with extension numbers for various employees. Humming a little, the thrill of vengeance, which probably wasn't much like what Medea felt, but it still made her feel connected to the character... Zara dialed the number for the company's vice president. It was after midnight, so all she got was voicemail, but that's what she wanted. After the recorded greeting and the beep, Zara said, Doug Mitchell calling, and pressed the play button on her digital answering machine. Doug's voice came on, rambling about the indignities he craved, cock-shaped gags, butt plugs, floggings. He never mentioned her name, only said, You, I need you to, I want you to, you have to. Zara let the recording play for several minutes over several messages. Then she paused the playback, hung up, and dialed another number at Doug's company, this time the head of human relations, and repeated the process, introducing Doug and then letting his recording ramble. Then a woman's voice emerged from the answering machine, and Zara tried to stop the playback before the HR director's voicemail could record it. She accidentally hit the delete button, erasing the woman's message. The voice had sounded vaguely familiar, but Zara couldn't place it, and she hadn't heard more than the first few words. Ah, well, if it was important, she would call back. Zara hung up on that voicemail and called another extension. Now her machine held nothing but Doug's messages, and she poured his litany into dozens of voicemail boxes at his company, eventually dialing extensions at random until she was too exhausted to keep going. Doug was going to have an interesting day at work tomorrow. Zara had worked as a temp often enough to know how the Grey Horde operated. They would play the messages for one another, put Doug's voice on speakerphone, argue over whether or not it was really him, and eventually decide it was. Of course, it was. She'd been careful not to leave a message in Doug's own voicemail box. She wondered how long it would take him to figure out why everyone was laughing at him. This wouldn't exactly balance things between her and Doug, but maybe it would give him the idea that she wasn't someone to be fucked with, and that she could hurt him in ways that had nothing to do with catering to his masochistic side. Sara stripped and crawled into bed near dawn, happy and content, suffused with schadenfreude, definitely ready to play Medea the next night she dreamed of women with brass wings, of singing stones, of bloody tears, of scorpions the size of lobsters, arrayed on serving platters, of old women weeping inconsolably over child-shaped coffins. Zara made it into the city that night without incident, encountering no grease-painted strangers, no weird detours in the BART station, no sociopathic talent scouts, no Doug. He hadn't called either, but maybe he was just afraid to leave more incriminating evidence on her answering machine. She went backstage and got help with her makeup, hair, and costume. She was keenly attuned to any differences in the way her fellow actors treated her since last night, but for the most part, they concentrated on their own preparations. She supposed they were whispering about her in corners, wondering about how much she charged, but that might have been simple paranoia. She closed her eyes and took deep breaths, inhaling the faintly sweet, powdery scent of her own stage makeup. Paranoia was fine. Paranoia could be used in portraying Medea. Before curtain, the director came to give them a little pep talk. You know what they say, he said, not even glancing at Zara. A terrible dress rehearsal means a fabulous opening night. If that's true, we've got nothing to worry about now. Everyone laughed, and a little piece of Zara turned to cinders and ash inside. Getting her revenge on Doug hadn't solved everything. It didn't change what he'd done to her. But revenge had enabled her to sleep well last night, so there was something to be said for it. There's a full house out there, the director said. Even people standing in the back. Some of them aren't even my relatives, so let's go, folks. Break a few legs. The play began, and Zara waited in the wings for her cue. The actress playing her nanny talked to the children on stage, saying, Go to your rooms, little ones. Your mother's had a terrible time lately, and it's best you stay out of her way. I can see everything welling up behind her eyes, every injustice, every sorrow, and I'm afraid of what she might do when it becomes too much for her. Zara began speaking her lines as she walked on stage. Oh, misery! Oh, the things I've suffered! And you, my sweet children, you little shits, every time I look at you, I see your father. The Furies arrived late, having gotten lost on their way to the address given in their letter of commission. They only found their way at all because a well-dressed, smoky-voiced woman they met on the street offered to show them the way. After they arrived, the Furies stood on the pavement outside the building for a moment, gazing without understanding up at the lighted marquee, the cars on the street, the people laughing on the sidewalks. Their lives had been a haze of bitterness, impatience, and plodding along for years piled upon years. And even as they'd moved through the city those past decades, they hadn't really seen their surroundings, living mostly in their memories and minds. Now they were marginally more conscious, able to converse, able to take in the contours of the modern world as more than a cascade of lights and noise. They huddled together before the glass doors briefly, taking strength from one another. It had been a long time since they'd gone forth on an errand of justice. "'A man in a wrinkled white shirt and a dark tie walked past them, muttering, "'then turned and walked back, pacing, his hands balled into fists. "'Fucking bitch,' he said. "'I'll kill you, bitch. You can't do this to me.' "'He didn't notice the furies, and they looked at one another knowingly. "'The man was a poison sack about to burst. "'Perhaps now that they were active again, "'they would have cause to punish him soon "'if his rage led him to transgress against those bound to him by marriage or blood.' Inside, I suppose, Electo said, and led the other two through the glass doors into a vast room with red velvet walls beneath a dusty crystal chandelier. The people standing behind glass counters and leaning on walls didn't notice the three of them at all, beyond slight headaches and sudden sweats. Electo looked around, frowning. I've just thought, that woman who showed us the way, how could she see us? "'She didn't see us,' Megara snapped. "'She saw three old ladies. "'What we need, the world provides. "'So it has always been. "'We needed direction, and she came. "'I'm just happy to be here,' Tissaphone said. "'She paused, peering at the columns, "'painted gold, the domed ceiling "'decorated with carved cherubs, "'all the faded opulence. "'Don't be happy,' Megara said. "'We've been called, which can only mean blood, "'kin murdering kin, an affront to the gods, "'a cursed house. "'That shouldn't make you happy.' I think we're old enough to be honest with ourselves, Electo said soothingly. We're all happy. I feel so sharp tonight, better than I have in ages. Hard work is good for the mind, Megara said. We've been idle too long. Where is that woman who showed us the way? Tissiphone said. I meant to thank her. We thanked her by not scooping out her eyes when she looked upon us, Megara muttered. She seemed familiar to me as I think of it. Electo said. She squinted around the lobby. What is this place? I thought someone said it was a theater. Tissaphone said, but she sounded unsure. Nonsense, Megara said. Theaters are outside. She gestured vaguely. There are always goats about. We used to go to the theater, and it was nothing like this. We used to be in the theater. Tissiphone said. They used to have plays about us. Perhaps they will again some day. Electo said. Come, we must find the murderess. The ladies heard a collective gasp beyond a set of double doors. They hurried forward and threw the doors open. A woman sat on a raised platform at the far end of the darkened room beyond, awash in a beam of white light. Gore clotted her hair and blood streaked her arms. She cradled a pair of dead children and stared up at the lights. She cried out, Our children are dead. Surely that stings you. The ladies looked at one another and nodded. It was just what the letter of commission had told them to expect, a mother who'd murdered her children in public for revenge. They linked arms. Their forms, the old woman shapes they'd worn for so long, rippled and fluttered, revealing blacker, more fundamental bodies beneath. The furies surged toward the stage. During the penultimate scene, as Zara, as Medea, sat on stage with her dead children in her arms, everything went wrong. Zara was supposed to be under a single spotlight, but suddenly a dozen other stage lights came on, illuminating the blood-spattered wreckage of the suburban living room set. She barely paused in her lines at first, the show must go on, but then the house lights came up too, and she heard the keening from the back of the house, a high-pitched and strangely gleeful wail. The people in the audience should have turned around and looked back, craning their heads as Zara did to find the source of the noise, but they didn't move. In fact, they didn't move at all. They were perfectly still, even a man apparently just back from the bathroom who hovered over his seat in the act of sitting down. Yet they weren't frozen. They trembled and shifted slightly. It was like the moment in an improv exercise when the director calls, freeze, and everyone stops and holds whatever position they happen to be in. "'What the fuck?' Zara said and let go of the children." They slid down to the stage, still holding their curled-up-to-her positions. Something was coming down the aisle, toward the stage, something like a black sheet blowing in the wind. Zara stood up, and the chorus stepped onto the stage, half from stage left, half from stage right. They arrayed themselves behind her in a semicircle and said, "'Poor woman, swept up by tragedy, who will give you succor? You have been led into a forest of horrors.'" The black shadow swooped up on stage towards Zara, howling and laughing. Zara glimpsed shapes in the roiling blackness, wings, stones, coffins, eyes, talons, scorpions, whips, spears, flails. She brought her hands up before her face. A flash of pain seared her, the taste of glass and blood in her mouth, ball bearings in her bones, something with serrated teeth gnawing deep in her gut. She gasped and doubled over, And the pain passed, leaving only the bare hint of a memory behind. Zara lowered her hands to see three old women standing before her, dressed in stained housecoats. One of the women was regal, with the face of a queen. She looked stunned. Another was pinch-faced and hunched over, and she glowered. The last had disheveled hair and fluttering hands, and seemed on the verge of tears. What, what happened, this last one said. Cast change. Said a smoky voice from the audience. It was Nicky, the talent scout, dressed in a black tailored suit, rising from her seat in the front row. You showed us the way here, said the regal old woman. You gave us directions. Oh, I had a lot to do with bringing us all together. Somebody better start talking, Zara said, crossing her arms. You have absolutely fucked up my show, and there'd better be a good reason. Show? "'said the pinch-faced woman. "'Yes,' Nicky said, climbing the steps to the stage. "'It's a play, ladies, about Medea.' "'I remember Medea,' the regal woman said. "'She looked at Zara. "'This is no Medea.' "'Very true,' Nicky said, looking down at the children. "'She nudged the boy in the ribs "'with the toe of her stylish, low-heeled boot. "'They are not dead, but only sleeping. "'But what?' the disheveled one began. "'The regal woman interrupted her.' "'I think I understand. We're being retired. You sent the letter of commission. We've been tricked,' she squinted. "'And I think I know you, daughter of chaos, mother of death and sleep. Nyx.' "'Nyx? The goddess of night shouldn't be blonde?' the pinch-faced one said. "'Why would you trick us?' the fluttering woman cried. Nicky snorted. "'There was a time when you couldn't have been tricked, ladies.' Okay, I'm out of here, Zara said. I clearly walked in on the movie halfway through. You can fight it out amongst yourselves. I'm going to get this blood off me because it itches when it dries. Zara, Nikki said, and it was a tone of voice Zara recognized. She'd used it herself on Doug during their sessions. Stay. It was a voice meant to be obeyed. Quite against her will, Zara found herself standing still. These women are... The Kindly Ones, they were called sometimes. The Solemn Ones. The... The Furies, Zara said. The Erignes? The Terrible Ones? At Nicky's look of surprise, Zara rolled her eyes. I'm an actress woman, remember? I've read the classics. Christ, I'm starring in motherfucking Medea, in case you hadn't noticed. Oedipus was the motherfucking one, the disheveled old lady said, sounding pleased with herself. Not Medea. Yes, well... Nicky said, glancing at the ladies, then turning her attention back to Zara, "'The Furies are a force for vengeance. They punish those who kill their relatives. They saw you on stage and thought you'd murdered your children and tried to punish you. I imagine you felt the leading edge of that, hmm? "'But you didn't kill your children. By attempting to punish you unjustly, these kind ladies committed a serious transgression.' "'By that mistake they proved themselves unfit to be the instruments of justice. "'In further fact,' and here she smiled, teeth as white as stars, "'as the injured party you now have the moral authority to punish them.' "'We were deceived,' the regal old woman said, voice shaking with barely suppressed rage. "'We were told there would be murder tonight. "'We behaved rashly, yes, without the care we once would have shown, "'but we are not solely culpable.' Zara looked at the old woman, then back at Nikki and began to laugh. You don't believe me, Nikki said, still sounding smug. Shit, no, I believe you, she said. Everybody in the audience looks like they got touched while playing freeze tag, and these white-faced freaks in the chorus have been following me since yesterday, making with the portents. I'd be crazy not to believe you. I'm laughing because you expect me to take over from the Furies. Sorry, not a role I'm interested in. You don't have a choice, Nikki said. The ladies got too old, too boring, and certain parties decided there needed to be a caste change. You got the part, Zara. I'm the greatest talent scout there ever was. You should thank me. What certain parties, Zara said. The gods. Didn't that woman say you were, what, the goddess of night? What gives you the right to fuck with me? Nobody even believes in those gods anymore. Now Nikki laughed. She sat down, cross-legged, in a puddle of fake blood, heedless of dirtying her clothes. Oh, Zara, really. I was born long before the gods, and I'm a child compared to the beings I work for. The gods are nothing. They were shat and belched and vomited up out of chaos, and that's where most of them have returned. The gods are just props, like these old ladies are, like you are now. You're just part of the play. But who do you think commissioned the play? Who is the director of the play of the world? Who is the producer of the universe? Those beings are the ones in charge, Zara. And the producers want you to take over as an avenging force in the world. These three women sprang from the blood of Uranus to avenge his murder. Uranus was killed by a family member, and the ladies took that as their guiding principle and went on to punish other people for that same sin. And now your vengeance personified. You can punish these women for their transgression. Zara thought about the searing pain the Furies had inflicted on her so briefly. So you're saying I have power? Yes, Nikki said. Sometimes, when you have cause. The Furies only punished kin killers. We're not yet sure what your specialty will be, but we're all very excited to find out. She glanced upward. You know, some stories say I gave birth to the Furies, as I gave birth to pain, age, strife, and death, but it was never true, until now. I feel something like a mother to you now, Zara. The house lights went down, and the stage lights too, until there were only three spots, one on Nicky, one on the former Furies, one on Zara herself. Zara wasn't sure how, but she knew she was the one who'd made the lights change. Her power was showing itself now, whether she liked it or not. Nikki stood up and stepped away from her spotlight, into the dark. Now, she said, punish them, Zara, for what they did to you. The former Furies stood, their backs straight, their heads held high, waiting. No, Zara said, I won't do it. The spotlight found Nikki again. Nikki sighed. There was no fake blood on her clothes, though she'd been sitting in a pool of it. You don't have any choice. There is always a choice, the regal fury said. We forgave Orestes. We were the benevolent ones for a time. Yeah, Zara said, I can be benevolent. Nicky pinched the bridge of her nose between her thumb and forefinger as if fighting a headache. This isn't the way we meant things to go. Zara slapped Nicky hard, leaving a bloody smear across her cheek. The chorus gasped and murmured. Nikki stared at her, eyes wide. "'This isn't a play,' Zara said, suddenly overcome by the pressures of the past few days. "Doug, the chorus, rehearsal, and now this. "'You aren't my director. "'I'm not going to say the lines you wrote. "'You need to learn to tell the difference "'between what's real and what's not, "'or you're going to be in for a hard time.' She turned to the Furies and snapped her fingers. The light on them went out. "'Go on,' she said. "'Show's over. "'You're forgiven.' Nikki rubbed her bloody cheek. What? You think you've saved them? They'll just get old and die now like normal people. That's better than killing them because of something you tricked them into doing, Zara said, shaking her head. Nikki smiled. Oh, Zara. We're going to have a great time watching you. You're going to cut a swath, aren't you? I don't want the part, Zara said. Sure, Nikki said. Whatever you say. I've got to be going. You might want to pick up the children and go on with your lines. Time's going to come flooding back in here in a moment. You can finish your little play, take your bows, and then move on to more important things. I'll see you around, but you won't see me. Nikki stepped out of the spotlight again, and when Zara mentally shifted the light to follow her, it illuminated only the bloody stage. Nikki and the ladies were gone. Zara sank back down to her knees and gathered the children toward her. Getting back into the role of Medea for this last scene was going to be hell. Zara begged off from the cast party, saying she didn't feel well. And after she'd cleaned up and changed into her street clothes, she left the theater by the side entrance. She had a lot of thinking to do. She didn't feel any different, didn't feel brimming with power. Maybe her life didn't have to change. Maybe she could just go on the way she'd always, Bitch! Doug said, stepping from behind a rusty trash container. You called my office! You fucked with my life! Zara moved toward him, fists clenched. And what do you think you did to my life, you brainless prick? she shouted. Doug stumbled back, startled. Clearly, he'd run this scenario through in his head a few times, and it hadn't involved Zara being loud and aggressive. He rallied, though, and came toward her again. I just wanted what you owed me. I paid you to perform a service, and you thought you could just stop any time you wanted? Yes, Doug, you moron. It was a job. I quit. "'But we had a real connection,' he said, sounding hurt now. "'I could tell by the way you acted with me "'that our sessions meant something to you, to both of us, "'by the way we synced up perfectly, "'anticipated one another's—' "'No,' she said, not shouting now, just speaking quietly. "'And Doug fell silent. "'No. I was acting. I'm an actress. "'It's not my fault if you can't tell the difference "'between a real connection and playing pretend.' "'I'm sorry you feel that way,' he said.' But you're lying to yourself. I'll make you understand. He reached into his pocket and came out with a knife, a fancy one with a shining blade and a skeletal frame steel hilt. Zara narrowed her eyes. This was so fucking melodramatic. A spotlight illuminated Doug, and he squeezed his eyes shut in the sudden brilliance. What, he said, bewildered, shading his face and looking up toward the source of the blinding white light? It was coming from the empty air. Zara knew what to say. The words were there in her head—the perfect words, the natural words, the ones that didn't feel like prepared lines at all. She wondered whether Nikki and her friends, the producers, had driven Doug crazy, set him on this path in order to bring about this confrontation for their own entertainment. Maybe so, but Doug was still an asshole, and he still had a lesson to learn. She wouldn't kill him, but there were other punishments. "'You need to learn to recognize what's real, Doug,' she said, her voice almost sad. "'From now on, your life will be bathed in light and clarity. "'You'll never believe anything untrue again, "'and you'll never be able to tell untruths of your own, either. "'If you go to the movies, it will just be noise and flashing lights. "'If you go to the theater, it will just be people standing on a stage talking. "'Novels will be words on a page.' You don't deserve to experience stories, Doug, because you can't handle the responsibility that stories involve. She waved her hand and the spotlight went out. Doug sat down in the alley. He whimpered, I, I. He fell silent and dropped his knife and covered his face with his hands, desperately trying to put the scales back on his eyes. Zara walked out of the alley. Perhaps this was a role she could play after all. The Furies had lived to punish those who had murdered their loved ones. That was the circumstance of their birth, after all. But Zara had gained her powers because some people couldn't tell the difference between what was real and what was only a story, and those were the kind of people she would punish. The world wasn't a stage, no matter what Shakespeare thought, no matter what Nicky and her producers believed. Zara wouldn't play the part they had in mind for her. She was going off book. She was going to improvise. Oh, Nicky, she said, and felt the night air tremble. You fucked up, sister. It's my show now. As Zara walked out of the alley, a light, unseasonable rain began to fall. Once she was gone, the Greek chorus emerged from behind garbage cans and piled boxes to stand around Doug, who lay curled on the wet pavement. And so night fell, the chorus said, and the sky above the mountain of the gods was rent by a great light, And those above who penned the destiny of earth and heaven felt their hands tremble and watched as blotted ink spread across the parchment in their hands and wept to see their work undone. Then the chorus stood, mouths half open, as if unsure what to say next. Their white makeup began to smear and run in the falling rain.
0: And welcome back. Little known secret, here at PodCastle we have our own geek chorus that follows us around. Kind of like the ghosts at Stardust, except we can see them too. They wail as we write rejection letters, chant the name of narrators for stories we select to publish, munch popcorn in eager anticipation as the stories go live, although a surprising amount of them seem to be drinking coffee these days. And they type. Oh my god, do they type. Wonderful praises, frustrated rants, lots of cute little happy-faced icons. I'm talking, of course, about the Podcastle Forums, which you can find at forum.escapeartist.net. You can go there right now, sign up, and tell us what you thought of this week's story, and become part of the chorus. But wait. You're playing Podcastle as you commute. While you clean your house, or cook meals, fold laundry, work at the office. So... Maybe wear your chorus. Often invisible, but ever far away. Interesting. That in mind, let's head over to the forums to discuss feedback for Gary Kloster's badass urban fantasy and the blood of dead gods shall mark the score, read by Christiana Ellis. Generally, people liked it. Lulu said, the character development was really the highlight for me. Tattooing the blood of dead gods on your body for power is a fantastic image, but it was really the character of Woody that drew me in, and the slow reveal of who he was. I often get annoyed by stories in the just one more high genre, because I'm never convinced by the character's reasons for going back to a life of crime. In this case, though, how could Woody do anything else with the carrot of his deepest desire dangling in front of him? Blue-eyed devil. Huh. What is it with blue people on our forum? Anyway... Blue-Eyed Devil had an issue. Interesting concept world, but there seemed little actual fruition of the concept. At no point is anyone shown under the effects of the blood. As such, the concept of the piece, which could have borne great fruit, instead became a run-of-the-mill MacGuffin. And Raymond said, It was a pleasant surprise to hear a story told from the viewpoint of a female-to-male protagonist. Given where we are in transgender history, it's probably inevitable that Woody would have a storyline about who I am and who I'm striving to become, But that aspect felt a bit clunky to me. Woody's abusive relationship with Huck was vivid enough to be frustrating. Thanks to the author, whose description of the story's development did not treat the trans man as an oddity, and to the narrator, and to PodCastle. Thank you, Raymond, and thanks to everyone else for leaving comments on this story. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. All of our money goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcastle from being overtaken by Gorgons or Krakens, and especially crazy corporate assholes who try to get in our faces at dress rehearsals. Although Anna really likes giving those guys the boot. Anyway, since really appreciated. Thanks. That's our show for this week, folks. Thanks so much for letting all of us here at Podcastle share another story with you. A special thanks to Wilson Folly for handling the introduction duties this week. Hey, Wilson. We uh, do have some spare space heaters. They're a few levels down from the dungeon. In hell. Knock yourself out, buddy. Thanks. We'll be back next time with a strange original story from Mr. Robert T. Jashanik. Until then, remember, it's our show now, and we mean to improvise or at least misbehave. We'll see you in a week.
2: You can discuss this episode of PodCastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site.
0: Maya Angelou said, There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you.